Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you will get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today and become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. And be sure to add Casting Through Ancient Greece in How Did You Hear About the Podgo section of the application. Casting Through Ancient Greece is now on Patreon. If you would like to support the series over on Patreon, you can head to patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece, where you can gain access to bonus episodes plus many more extras. That's patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece, or you can click on the link on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I will not hold life dearer than liberty, nor will I desert the leaders, whether they be living or dead. But I will bury all the allies who have perished in the battle. And if I overcome the barbarians in the war, I will not destroy any one of the cities which have participated in the struggle. Nor will I rebuild any one of the sanctuaries which have been burnt or demolished. But I will let them be and leave them as a reminder to coming generations of the impiety of the barbarians. An extract of the Oath of Plataea as recounted by Diodorus Siculus. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 27, The Road to Plataea. It was now August of 479 BC, and the Persians had been occupying Greek territory for over a year now. The hostilities leading to this point had stretched back some 20 years to the Ionian Revolt, where many of the men serving in the various Polis armies were but children. Though they had grown up in a generation where the Persians were presented as enemies of Hellas, well perhaps more so for the thirty-odd cities that would come together and form the Hellenic League, committed to the defence of Greece. In this time, a number of battles had already taken place. Outside of Ephesus, in 498 BC, one of the first recorded battles of Greeks against Persians took place, where the Greeks were routed. Again, the Greeks were defeated in 494, this time at sea at the Battle of Lade which saw the Ionians bid for freedom fail. The Persians then mounted their campaigns west against the Greek mainland, seeing the Battle of Marathon taking place in 490, with the Athenians and Plataeans defeating the first invasion. Ten years later, the Persians were back and had defeated a defensive stand at the past Thermopylae and watched the Greek fleet sail back from Artemisium after three days of fighting. The Greeks appeared to be on the back foot. Xerxes had control of Greece all the way down into Attica, while the Greek allies were at odds with one another and the best way forward. Eventually, the naval battle of Salamis was forced due to some cunning on the part of Themistocles. This was the breakthrough that the Greeks needed, and they inflicted a crushing defeat on Xerxes' fleet. This would see the Persian fleet essentially become combat ineffective for the near future. After the defeat, Xerxes would take a large portion of the army back to the empire. There are hints that another revolt had also broken out in Babylonia, providing another line of reasoning for Xerxes' withdrawal from Greece, or at least added to his decision to leave. One of the generals, Mardonius, was left with a sizable army still occupying Greek lands. He had resorted to diplomacy to try and break the already fractious Hellenic League. We saw his attempt to try and break the Athenians from the League through the use of Alexander of Macedon, though the Athenians publicly refused the terms in front of the Spartans, hoping to kick them into action. 
Mardonius then went on an offensive once again and occupied Athens for a second time in 12 months. He would now give one last attempt at convincing the Athenians, who had evacuated again to Salamis, to submit to the Persian Empire. Though no one knew it yet, the Greeks were on the eve of the largest battle that would see them become more united than any other point during the Persian Wars. But nothing less would be needed to finally defeat the second Persian invasion. We closed last episode with Mardonius's reoccupation of Athens, though most of the Athenians had fled from the villages in Attica and Athens itself, back to the island of Salamis. Now back in control of Athens, Mardonius thought it was well worth offering the same term he had sent with Alexander of Macedon again. He could feel the league at breaking point. Perhaps now the added pressure of the loss of their territory would help them come around. If he could manage to get the Athenians on the side of the empire, his prospects of defeating the Greeks were much better. As things stood, the Persian army wasn't in the best position to force a decision. They lacked their navy, which would be essential if they wanted to attack Salamis and if a campaign against the Peloponnese was to be attempted. Mardonius sent a messenger to offer the terms again to the Athenians on Salamis. It appears that for some Athenians, they were at breaking point. We hear from Herodotus that when the terms were once again offered before the council, a man named Lycidotus argued that they should accept what was on offer, though it appears that the majority was still in favour of resisting or keeping their opinions to themselves, especially following Lycidotus's fate. Herodotus continues, The Athenians, both those in attendance at the council and the others outside, at once grew indignant when they found out about this proposal that they surrounded Lycidotus and stoned him until he died. Herodotus then goes on to tell us that word spread and the Athenian women gathered and marched onto Lycidotus' house and proceeded to stone his wife and children. It would seem the tensions amongst the Athenian community on Salamis were resting on a razor's edge. The messenger that Mondonius had sent, who was a Greek from the Hellespont region, must have been very nervous of his fate after witnessing the events unfold. Plus, the Athenians had been known to toss Persian messengers in a pit previously. Though he was sent on his way to report back the rejection of Mardonius's offer, though their actions would have made this very clear. With the Athenians resolute in their decision to defend against the Persian invasion, Mardonius really had only one option left open to him. He needed to entice the Greeks to come out from behind the wall on the isthmus and draw them into territory suited for his most formidable arm, the cavalry. If the Athenians weren't going to take his offer, hopefully his heavy focus on trying to tempt the Athenians would cause doubts regarding their course of action amongst their allies. The Athenians had much the same objective as Mardonius. They wanted to get the Spartans and other Peloponnesians out from behind their wall, so that the League as a whole could engage the Persians still occupying their territory. They were steadfast in their loyalty towards the defence of Hellas, but left enough doubt to try and convince the Peloponnesians into action. Throughout the period, Messengers and delegates would have been making their way between Athens and Sparta to try and gain a commitment from the Spartans to come and fight north of the Isthmus. Eventually, though, after this final offer by Mardonius, the Athenians arranged for a delegation to give a last-ditch effort at securing this commitment from the Spartans. The men sent on this diplomatic mission were told to proclaim that if the Spartans did not help defend the Athenians, then the Athenians would find some other way to save themselves without such assistance. This was to make it clear to the Spartans that the offer extended to Athens by Mardonius would be seriously considered, as if no help was forthcoming, there would be no other option open to the Athenians. This Athenian delegation arrived in Sparta to where the pious Spartans were in the middle of celebrating yet another religious festival. This had affected Spartan commitment before Marathon in 490 BC, 
and Thermopylae in 480. The Athenians arriving in Sparta were probably guessing that little would eventuate from their appeals. Also, it would have been noticed that the wall across the Isthmus of Corinth was nearing completion, providing yet more psychological security to the Peloponnesians behind it. The Athenians had been joined by delegations from Plataea and Megara, who were also affected by the Persian occupation. An audience was gained before the ephors, for Athens once again outlined the generous offer Mardonius had made to them, which if followed through on would see them becoming the most powerful city in Greece, though answerable to Xerxes. The Athenians, though, reinforced their commitment to Hellas and had proclaimed that they had refused the offer. But now taking a jab at the Spartans, they said they remained committed to the defence of Greece, even though the rest of the Hellenic League had not shown the same commitment, which saw all of Attica being overrun for a second time. The delegation refrained from approaching the Spartans too harshly in this first meeting, but had put across their displeasure in the past promises which had amounted to nothing. Though they were focused on the present and urged for action now, the ephors, after listening to the Athenian pleas, now continued to delay. Their response, they assured, would come the next day. Once the next day arrived, though, a meeting with the delegations was put off for another day. This response was delivered to the increasingly frustrated Athenians for the next ten days. Finally, the different delegations had had enough of these delaying tactics and saw there was no hope on achieving a decision. The Athenians, now finally able to gain a meeting with the ephors once again, were much blunter in their address. Herodotus reports on what was delivered. Lacedaemonians, you may remain here, celebrating the high Caninthia and assuming yourselves while betraying your allies. The Athenians, since they have been wronged by you and are destitute of allies, will give up and make peace with the Persians in whatever way they can. And once we have done that, it is quite clear that we shall become the king's allies and we shall join him in marching against any land to which the Persians direct us. After listening to the threats of the Athenians, they now revealed to the astonishment of the delegation that in fact the Lacedaemonians were already on the march towards the Isthmus. They were already now approaching the border with Acadia, with more of the Peloponnesians en route to join them. The various delegations would have now rushed back to their polis to inform them of these sudden developments. This whole episode has been difficult to explain. This sudden turnaround from the seamlessly unending delaying by the Spartans has been hard to provide a clear answer to. We need to keep in mind everything we know about these talks appear to be from the Athenian sources, with very little insight into the behind-the-scenes dealings in Sparta. Herodotus relates a story that supposedly goes some way into explaining this change of policy. A man from Tegea was supposedly in Sparta during this period and had heard the Athenians' pleas. He was presented as a trusted outsider who was able to make the Spartans aware of the dangers they had failed to see for themselves. He told the ephors, presumably during this 10-day period, that if Athens allied with Persia, then it wouldn't be a matter of how strong the wall across the Isthmus were. There will be gates flung wide open for the Persians to enter the Peloponnese. A reference to the navy Persia would be able to make use of to avoid the Isthmus. Though it would seem the Spartans would have been well aware of the ramifications of Athens falling in line with the Persians, Plus its ramifications were implied on every occasion of the Athenians making them aware of Mardonius's offer. Another possibility going into some way to explain the appearance of this sudden turnaround revolves around the Spartans waiting to play their cards close to their chest, so as to their regional enemies not being aware of their intentions. It has been reported that Argos, Sparta's long-time bitter rival on the Peloponnese, had been in contact with Mardonius. 
they had assured him that they would block the Spartans' march should they attempt to head north. We are told by Herodotus that the Spartans had departed at night time. This coupled with the Spartans keeping their intentions under wraps would prevent Argos of learning of the Spartan march until it was too late for them to act. Which is precisely what Herodotus has a runner from Argos presenting to Mardonius and Attica. This has also led some to think, which Peter Green puts forward in his book The Greco-Persian Wars, that there were two distinct delegations sent from Athens, not one waiting around in Sparta for two weeks. So much of the activity around getting the armies ready to march would have been taking place while the delegations were absent and unable to learn of the intentions of the Spartans and the other Peloponnesians. Finally, something else to consider. The sources, as we have said, are predominantly Athenian, so show Sparta as delaying and failing to fulfil on their previous word. The Athenian navy had failed to meet with the rest of the Hellenic fleet, and Athens had a policy focused on the land forces now. Perhaps the failure to commit a land force north of Corinth on Sparta's behalf was in response to Athens' failure to commit to the naval force. These continuous streams of delegations may have been attempting to negotiate on the commitment of both arms. Athens may have been unwilling to deploy the navy, as this would reduce the committed forces on land. Though after seeing the Peloponnesians unwavering in their stance, a compromise had to be come to. Athens found a way to still provide a naval contingent without affecting the army too much. This then was able to satisfy the Spartans, and a campaign north now began to materialise. If this was the case, it seems the developments were unfolding over a longer period of time than what is presented in Herodotus's work. The mobilisation of many Poly's armies and the Athenian fleet would have needed more than a couple of days after a snap decision to finally act. It seems the mobilisation and march of the Peloponnesians was taking place around the same time that the Athenian navy would sail to join Leotychides at Delos. Though we will look more closely at the fleet's movements when looking at the Battle of Macale in a few episodes' time. The account from Herodotus does seem to slant very suspiciously on the side of the Athenians taking the role of the defenders of Hellas, while everyone else looked on. A position easily taken when it is your lands that are occupied, but your citizen body is still intact. Perhaps if they were still in their lands behind a defensive wall, the position they took may have been different. Though we can't discount the fact that there were factors the Spartans had to think about before sending the best part of their forces out of Lacedaemonia. As we have said, Argos was the main rival of Sparta. The Spartans would have been very wary of sending their entire army out of the Peloponnese, knowing Argos had open lines of communication with the Persians. It is not known how they dealt with this threat, but maybe a large enough Spartan hoplite force remained behind that would deter any action from the Argives. Also, a large portion of the Peloponnese was part of the Hellenic League, further deterring any action from Argos. Another consideration was the territory of Arcadia, seen not as a direct threat to Sparta, but they always had one suspicious eye on their neighbours to the north. As you may remember from our Spartan episodes, the two had a history. The Spartans being defeated and humiliated when they attempted to subjugate Tegia a couple of generations earlier. They were chained in the fetters that they had brought with them that they had intended to use on the Tegeans. Perhaps the visit that we get in Herodotus' account by the messenger from Tegia was a diplomatic mission where an understanding by the two was come to. Tegeans would also march north with the other Peloponnesians and would end up being stationed with the Spartans in the line of battle. Though probably one of the largest complications was that of the helot population. If the majority of the Spartans were away fighting, who would ensure revolt amongst the slave populations wouldn't break out? As we will see, the Spartans would end up addressing this issue 
by something unprecedented, though it was seen at a lesser extent a year earlier at Thermopylae. They would press into service the fighting age males who would pose the greatest risk back home. These men who accompanied the Spartan army on their march would be utilised as light infantry once deployed at Plataea. So as we have seen, there are many considerations to look at to try and unravel the true intentions and decisions behind what would lead to the Peloponnesians finally marching north. At this point, we are left to our best educated guests to try and understand what was really going on. Though, whatever the road to a decision being reached was, the various contingents of the Hellenic League were now on the march. The lead elements of the Peloponnesians' army, the part the Athenian delegation was surprised to learn of after their dressing down at the ephors, was made up of 5,000 Spartan hoplites and 35,000 helots, quite a considerable force. The Spartan hoplites were Spartiites, full Spartan citizens, and would have been the most part of the citizen body. In Laconia, another force of 5,000 hoplites was being assembled, and would march the same day the delegations left Sparta. This group were made up of the periorchy of Spartan society, not citizens, but free men nonetheless. They would also be accompanied by another group of helots, 5,000 strong. On the march, other Peloponnesian contingents would fall in with the Spartans as they headed north to the Isthmus, while others would meet them there at their pre-arranged rendezvous points. Once at the Isthmus, camp was established so that all the forces marching out of the Peloponnese could meet up. Many contingents would have marched once word had been received that the Spartans had moved, though it seems there was also an effort in gaining those polis who had yet to make known their commitment, with a number of them being encouraged into action by the large numbers of Greeks assembling. Once all of the committed Peloponnesian contingents had assembled at the camp, the pious Spartans, before continuing, now performed their sacrifices. Once favourable omens were received, the entire Peloponnesian force now continued the march along the Isthmus towards Eleusis, on the same road heading towards Athens, only some 20 kilometres away. The Spartans had employed a professional seer by the name of Tissamenus, who would perform all of the army's official sacrifices. Tissamenus was from the polis of Elis, but had been made a full citizen of Sparta, an extremely rare act to be extended to an outsider. Tissamenus had come to the attention of the Spartans after he received a prophecy telling him he would win five competitions. After trying to work out what these competitions were supposed to be, the Spartans had gotten wind of his oracle and concluded this referred to battles. With the coming threat of the Persian invasions, a price for his service was sought, ultimately including Spartan citizenship. When Pisanius and his Peloponnesian force arrived at Eleusis, the Athenian army crossed from Salamis and joined with the Peloponnesians, swelling the numbers of the Hellenic League force even further. The Athenians were able to ferry over 8,000 hoplites to join the Peloponnesians, with another 8,000 lighter troops. Also accompanying the Athenians and the Peloponnesians was the small exiled hoplite force of the Plataeans, who had assembled a force of 600. They would now get ready to march to a familiar territory, just outside their home polis, which most would not have laid eyes on for at least 12 months. Something also took place between the members of the Hellenic League at Eleusis, which is not recorded in Herodotus' account, but appears in some later sources, with Diodorus Siclus being one. This is where they supposedly swore an oath, known as the Oath of Plataea. This oath is what we began the episode with. It has been thought by a number of historians that the oath was a later creation, over a hundred years after the battle, when the Greeks were facing another crisis, Philip II of Macedon. Though some still also believe it to be an authentic oath, sworn before the Battle of Plataea between all of the Hellenic League members. 
Following the Greek march north was a large baggage train and camp followers, carrying the supplies to keep the Greeks fed. This long slow line of pack animals and troops would also provide a weak spot for the Persians to aim for as the battle unfolded, as we shall see. They were effectively marching into enemy territory with all the regions having submitted. Also, the scorched earth policy of the Persians saw that living from the land was not going to be possible. Everything the Greeks needed to stay in the field had to be brought with them. It is also interesting to note that this is one of the first times where other elements of the army are spoken about in the historical record, not just the hoplites. We have seen the light troops and even the helots brought up as being employed for the use with the army and contributing to its effective strength. And now we are given a picture that for this campaigning season supplies were to play a major part in achieving success. I think that seeing these elements brought up for this campaign shows that this effort was larger than any other land campaign the Greeks had undertaken in their memory of that time. It had been recognised that these support roles were seen as instrumental if victory was to be achieved. Mardonius and his Persian force were still occupying Athens and Attica, while the various diplomatic missions were taking place between the members of the Hellenic League. It's unclear if Mardonius thought the Athenians would seriously accept his offer, though if he did in fact send two delegations offering the same terms on different occasions, then he must have seen it at least a chance. But if anything, this was going to cause suspicion in the Greek camp. By just extending the offer to one of them, the most powerful in terms of the navy, then he could quite conceivably destroy cohesion amongst the Greek allies before engaging them in battle and defeating the Greek city-states piecemeal. As we have seen over the Greek and Persian wars, this was the favourite strategy of the Persian army. They would undermine the alliances of the opposing army, then attack the weakened result of their diplomatic endeavours. Though once word from the aggrieves arrived, the fighting force of Lacedaemon is on the march, and that the aggrieves have been powerless to stop it. Mardonius' hopes of gaining a powerful naval ally or destroying the alliances of the Hellenic League had evaporated. He had been keeping a watchful eye on the Peloponnese as to their intentions. The news of the march north indicated that the Greeks were far from disunited and the Hellenic League in fact held firm. The time for diplomacy had now passed and it was now time to mobilise his forces into action. Before the Spartans had reached the Isthmus, the army had already begun departing Athens, but before doing so, they raised to the ground all they could in Athens and destroying the countryside in Attica, completing a scorched earth policy before departing. The land in Attica was of no use to Mardonius now that the Greeks were determined to meet him in battle. The Attic countryside was ill-suited to his best arm, the cavalry, to take advantage of. He would pull back hoping to draw the Greeks into a territory of his own choosing. Though just as he had got the army on the march, word had arrived that an advance guard of 1,000 Spartans had reached Megara, a little close for comfort for his withdrawing army. Herodotus tells us that he halted the army and prepared to march on Megara, and had sent a force of cavalry ahead. It seems unlikely that Mardonius would have given battle even closer to the Isthmus. Perhaps the cavalry were sent to screen the army and delay the Spartan advance, so as to buy him some more time for the army to fall back. The withdrawal would take them just outside of Thebes and Boeotia, where the region had larger open plains which would offer better use of the Persian forces. The path chosen was not the most direct route, which would have taken the army through mountainous areas in Attica and Boeotia. Instead, he took a path east, allowing the army to march in more open country, less susceptible to ambushes. Once outside of Thebes, who had remained loyal to the Persians throughout the campaign, a large palisade was constructed. 
Herodotus tells us that much of the wooded areas in the region were stripped to construct this defensive work, though not with the intention of stripping the Thebans of their source of wood, but out of necessity. Once camped in Boeotia, many more troops would have been making their way to the Persian camp. The Medizing city-states who weren't with the main Persian army already would have now received word where to march, so as they could fulfil their duty to the Persian Empire. Supposedly the Greek troops that would assemble at the Persian camp to fight on their side would number around 50,000 hoplites and lighter troops. Herodotus also gives us a picture of the mood amongst the Persian commanders when a banquet has been arranged by the Thebans for Mardonius and 50 other distinguished Persians. 50 Thebans also attended with them seated intermixed with the Persians where conversation could freely flow between the men. Also helping with this free-flowing conversation was a healthy supply of wine served throughout the night. One of the Persian officers, sharing the couch with his Greek companion, said to him, You see these Persians at their dinner? And the army we left in camp over there by the river? In a short time from now, you will see but a few of these men left alive. He then continued to say, Many of us know that what I have said is true. Herodotus reports, A man named Thesender from Ochamenus told him that this is what the Persian officer had said to him, as he had received an invitation to the banquet. The Greeks had taken a more direct route towards Plataea than that of the Persians. From Eleusis, they had moved off north and then weaved their way through the passes of the Scytheron Mountains. As they began descending from the passes, they would have been able to see in the distance before them the Persian camp and the forces stretched along the opposite bank of the Esopus River. Pausanias would have been aware the Persians were deployed for battle, but now the ordinary Greek soldier was sure this would become the site of the showdown between the two sides. What lay before them looking down from the Scytheron Mountains was a vast plain, perfect cavalry country. The Greeks, though, would not descend into the plains but would begin to establish a defensive line in the foothills so as to provide them some protection from the formidable Persian cavalry. Between the two armies was the Esopus River and a couple of ridges that overlooked the river, which would prove to be good defensive positions once advancing from the foothills. Also, all along the line were various tributaries and gullies that would provide some protection to the formations in the immediate area. I have provided some maps on the episode's webpage, which give a general feel to the battlefield and the positions the armies occupied. It is thought that the rivers and tributaries may have had a different course in ancient times, but the main lay of the land remains fairly unchanged. It would appear that as the Greeks came out of the mountains, Basanes was deploying the contingents as they arrived, centred on Hyciae. In both Herodotus' histories and Plutarch's Life of Aristides, it would appear disagreements on who was to take what position was being argued. This mainly between the Athenians and Tegians over who would take the left wing. The Athenians would win out in the argument, but it seems probable that the deployment Herodotus gives of the Greek army wouldn't take place until the Greeks advanced from their initial positions in the foothills. It seems Pausanias was more interested in building a defensive line, as he may have been expecting to be attacked on his arrival, but we will cover the dispositions once they make their advance forward. As we have travelled through the series so far, we have had a picture of the Spartans being highly religious in all matters of their lives, especially that of warfare. Though most city-states took religious affairs quite seriously, and the prophecies delivered to them as well, as we have seen previously. It would now be Athens that would err on the side of caution. At this stage, with the army deploying out of the Scytheron Mountains, the leader of the Athenians, Aristides, would become very nervous of the situation that lay before him. The words of the Pythia from Delphi that had been revealed to him were playing on his mind, as the army's situation did not appear to be compatible with the prophecy from what he could see. 
Plutarch tells us that Aristides had sought to gain advice from the oracle, which had probably been delivered when it seemed the battle would be fought in Attica. It had outlined that the Greeks would overcome their enemy if sacrifices were given to the appropriate gods and heroes, and if they risked giving battle in their own territory, within the plains of the Aleutian goddesses. But looking around, the shrines of the gods and heroes outlined were not to be seen. Also, the Hellenic army had marched out of Attic territory. We are then told that the commander of the Plataeans took action to put Aristides' mind at ease. He wasn't going to risk seeing the Greek army fall back from their position because the Athenians, a large portion of the army, got nervous at a prophecy they couldn't reconcile. Though, with some careful manipulation of the oracle's words, perhaps the Athenians could be convinced to stay and give battle in the Plataeans' home territory. He claimed he had a dream where it had been revealed to him that the meaning Aristides took from his prophecy had been misinterpreted. He then proceeded to take Aristides on a whirlwind tour around the region they were to fight in. Making connection to all the gods and heroes, no matter how vague, and also pointed out the natural defences of the areas associated with them. Though to satisfy this last stipulation, the offer of victory if the Athenians fought in their own territories, this was going to be hard to explain away. So in this time of crisis, the Plataeans had the boundary stones removed from their borders, with Attica so to satisfy the final condition and Aristides' mind. This whole episode has also been seen as more of a reconnaissance of the battlefield, seeking out the best positions for defence. Perhaps what we get in the sources comes from some commanders being hesitant with the giving battle below the foothills. The commanders touring the battlefield may have convinced those unsure of committing their contingents out from the foothills. The major part of the Greek force had now assembled on the Scytheron line across from the Persians. Still more Greek contingents would have been arriving through the passes in the mountains along with the followers and baggage train. Looking around one would see the largest combined Greek force ever assembled. This time around it seemed that all of the city-states that were a part of the league had committed all of their available fighting strength hopefully defeat the Persians in a decisive battle that would for once and for all see the invaders forced from Greek lands. The Hellenic League at this moment probably stood at its most united since coming together nearly two years earlier. The Peloponnesians had from the beginning sought to make the Isthmus at Corinth the main defensive line against the Persian threat. This though would leave everything north vulnerable. One major factor that had created problems for them following this strategy was the fact that Athens, one of the most powerful polis of the League, lay north of this intended defence line. Compromise needed to take place for a successful coalition to come together for a chance at halting and ultimately defeating Xerxes' invasion. This coalition almost fell apart on a number of occasions, but now, finally it seems, a full commitment from all those involved had been made, and it wouldn't be until the Wars of Alexander the Great's generals, some 150 years later, that a Greek force this size would once again be assembled. The size of the Greek force would also see for once the disparity between the Greeks and the Persians much closer, a luxury the Greeks had not yet enjoyed. What now occurred in the Greek position was that of a defensive posture. Pausanias' seer, Tissimenus, had advised him that the omens had proved favourable if they fought a defensive battle. The Greek position was well protected by the Scytheron Mountains and the light troops positioned throughout the Greek hoplite contingents. In front of the Greeks was a plain that had many gullies and potholes that provided obstacles to any Persian advance. Pausanias would have been well aware that advancing the Greek force further out into the plains would see it become much more vulnerable to the Persian cavalry, seeing them having to contend with the Persian's strongest arm. Likewise, the Persians understood the position the Greeks held and were looking for them to advance so they could make better use of their forces. 
So what was now developing was similar to the situation at the Bay of Marathon just over 10 years earlier, when the Athenians and Plataeans opposed the Persian force landing there. If the Battle of Plataea was going to develop, one side would need to take the initiative. Eventually, Mardonius would take measures to try and force some action in the plains between the two, seeing the largest battle of the Greek and Persian wars develop. Thank you for your continued support, and a big shout out to those of you who are supporting the series over on Patreon. Your support over there really means a lot. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can support Casting Through Ancient Greece on Patreon. Supporters of the series over at Patreon receive various bonuses, such as early access and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and monthly video show updates. If you would like to support the show over on Patreon, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash Casting Through Ancient Greece, or click on the Patreon link on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. Other ways you can support the show are by leaving reviews at iTunes or on your favourite podcasting platform. They go a long way to helping the show. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook and Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can also subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. I hope you can join me next time for episode 28, The Opening Clash. <laughs>